you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. Happy Friday to you. On this week's episode, the award show that must not be named happened after a one-year broadcast ban. And another awards-granting body, one more worthy of your attention, the Screen Actors Guild, announced its nominees. We'll get to all that later, but first... If Ryan Johnson were not a filmmaker, he very well could be a mathematician or an astrophysicist. His movies are like puzzles, and there's usually a character who can solve them. In Johnson's latest film, that person is Detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. Johnson's films include Looper, Star Wars, Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, Knives Out, and the new sequel to that last film, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Since it premiered on Netflix in late December, Glass Onion has become one of the streaming service's most popular films ever. Netflix says subscribers watch more than 253 million hours of Glass Onion in its first 17 days of release. I spoke with Johnson over Zoom the other day, and we talked about the film's success, the unique release strategy that Netflix had for it, and about how he starts when he's piecing together a mystery. Here's our conversation. Ryan, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, welcome back. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. I'm going to play a clip from a DVD bonus. Uh, I think you'll recognize the voice. Let's listen to it. Hello, this is Ryan Johnson, and welcome to the extended and deleted scenes section of the DVD. Uh, there weren't a lot of scenes that were completely cut out of the movie, just because the plot is so intricate that it's kind of like a string of dominoes. We couldn't take anything out. Um, you're not talking about either Glass Onion movie. What are you talking about there? If I had to venture, I guess, Looper? Is that Looper? Brick. Brick. Oh, it's Brick. 2005. But wow. The, but the fact that you said Looper, I think, proves my point, that there is a <laughs> mathematical formula. And I don't know if this Hollywood thing didn't turn out if you'd be some sort of astrophysicist. But there's a mathematical formula to your movies going all the way back to brick that if you move mm. one piece out, the whole thing kind of collapses. And I think that's true of the Glass mm. Onion movies. And have you ever thought about that? That I mean, you thought this was Looper, that there's a structure to your films <laughs> You know, everybody has structure, but this is like, yeah. you know, you called it dominoes. You take one out and they all start falling over. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, part of that probably comes from the way I, I learned to write movies. I learned to write movies starting with structure. I love structure. And I feel like people who can sometimes hit kind of a distrust of it, um, kind of a sense from some people that structure leads to like a rote sort of formulaic approach to writing or it can't lead or it negates the element of surprise because if you know what's coming the audience will too or what have you that's for me it's the exact opposite for me 
I start with the shape of the movie. And that's what structure is essentially for me is the shape of the movie. And that contains all the things that aren't cold and structural that contains the theme of the movie and the emotional impact it's going to have on the audience. All of that is for me starts with this shape that I draw on a little piece of my notebook that, um, that is kind of how the how the whole movie is going to flow. It's a skeleton of it. So, so I think starting with that maybe is what leads to uh, maybe that effect that you're talking about. I said glass onion movies. Let me just say knives out movies. <laughs> no glass onion, but I love I love that I love that you said that though because that's my goal with these things is that it won't be you know the knives out franchise. Knives out was the first movie. Glass onion was like I want people to refer to them by whatever the most recent movie is. So okay. so thank you. I, I take that as a win. <laughs> you said when you start to draw in your notebook, is that. Are you yeah. talking about writing down words or is it really, I'm thinking of that Charlie Day meme or Glenn Beck's uh, chalkboard <laughs> where these all the, I think you know what I'm talking about, these all randomly yeah. interconnected lines. Is that, do you start visually it, like drawing structure before you're writing words or character? Yeah, it it's like that meme, but a little more insane. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it is yeah, Glenn Beck. I'll, I'll, I'll it is a full Glenn Beck. It's the only aspect of my life in which I go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm working. Yeah, I'm working on the next one right now. So I, I, I can show you. I've got. Yep. I work in these little moleskin notebooks. Love those. And it's kind of what I'll do is, especially like when I'm at the start, which I am now on, on the third movie. You know, it's a combination of kind of free flow writing, just kind of almost the equivalent of. of it's not journaling, but it's, it's just keeping my hand moving while I'm thinking. It's kind of a way of thinking out loud on paper. And then little ideas will like, oh, this is interesting. That's interesting. At some point, though, when I'm ready to actually get started, I will draw a line. And it is a graphic thing. I have a really specific way I do it. I don't think I have one in this notebook that I'm waving in front of the camera that nobody can see who's it's listening okay. to this. It's okay. We can so. explain on radio. <laughs> so we'll use our words. So... Basically, I'll draw an arc across, and it's a pocket-sized moleskin notebook, if you can imagine. So, you know, whatever five inches five across, by seven. I'll draw a little, and I'll I'll draw a little arc, and then I'll do little cross hatches on the arc, and I will split it up. Usually, I kind of zoom in, start zoomed out. So I'll start with <clears throat> sometimes as little as like the axe. I'll start with okay, the basic idea, like with glass onion. Spoiler alert! If anyone hasn't seen it yet, um, skip ahead because we'll talk about um, three people. Yeah, so uh, you know, it started with something as simple as the notion of the fugue structure, and that's what the whole movie was built on. So, and hence the cameo from Yo-Yo Ma. Exactly. Yeah, explaining. <laughs> I was like, well, if anyone's going to explain the fugue, why not get Yo-Yo Ma? Uh, so you do the first half of the film, and you tell the whole story. You do a hard reset right at the midpoint. And then you do the second half of the movie where you retell that same story from another perspective. And the challenge of, I mean, that is a good example of just a structural thing that every single um, story element ends up coming out of. Is that something you learned or something that just became a thing? I, and I'm wondering too, as you're writing, are you listening to, you know, some fugues by, I don't know, Bach? <laughs> uh, does that help yeah. you? I'm a big Bach fan, so I'm I'm generally I'll be listening to Bach a lot of the time. Is that time true? I, I love Bach. I love I, I've uh, I've kind of delved in the past five years into into classical music. Opera was kind of my 
um, gateway into into getting more into classical. And so, yeah, but also, um, uh, you know, a, a fan not only of Bach, but about of, uh, you know, go to Lesher, go to Lesher Bach. You know, the, the, there's been a lot of the, the people, I think, especially puzzle nerds love to talk about Bach because Bach, you know, Famously, like in his, his 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 music, he would put hidden messages, and there's an element of cryptology to uh, his writing. And there's a he was kind of the 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 first music nerd <laughs> a little bit. So uh, so it, which was another reason why it made a lot of sense to kind of reference him in this movie. Um, but yeah, I think I, I learned. Um, my dad took me to a, a Robert McKee seminar when I was in high school. And so the notion of structure as a starting point got kind of lodged in my brain really early. And I've slowly over the years, I hope, been kind of, you know, figuring out how to use it in an organic way more and more. Uh, Robert McKee is a uh, very well-known screenwriting teacher. His famous book is Story, Substance, Structure, Style, and the Principles of Screenwriting. Um, and he also has one about character and one about action. But I think that's it's the first one that is the most famous. Yeah. I was talking with um, Kate Blanchett about Tar the other day, and she said, uh, in speaking about Todd Field, the writer-director, that often when you get on set, the director, if he or she is the writer, will start saying, well, we don't have to do that. Let's do something else. And that Kate said, it's very important for the actor to say, you wrote it. It must mean something Let's see if we can mm. figure out a way to do what you wrote. And has that ever happened on set mm. that as the director, it's like, ah, I don't know. Let's let's do this instead. But the direct, but the writer in the privacy or quiet of his own mind or home or working space mm. has an idea that maybe you shouldn't ditch when yeah. it's when yeah. you know, other things come into play. Has that happened to you? <clears throat> yeah, I mean that that also it, it has Daniel actually Daniel Craig keeps me honest in that regard and um because I when I get on set it is it is almost like the person that wrote the script becomes a different person <laughs> in my head and I think because it was me I feel I don't feel precious at all about uh what's on the page when I get on set I do tend to want to um, you know, explore it. And if it's not working, find something else. And sometimes I will even make the leap of, okay, why don't we try this or that? And I mean, the, in the first Knives Out, um, there was a kind of an extended monologue that Daniel had about a donut hole that um, I was very excited about in writing and that I almost cut during rehearsals because I thought, well, it's at the point in the movie where we kind of just want to get the ending going and I kind of second guessed myself, and that was he. he Daniel pulled a pulled a Lydia Tar. He uh, he said, "No, I, th I think this is really good and really important for Blanc." I was like, "Oh well." And then I saw him do it. I was sitting at the monitor, just thinking, "Oh my God! Thank God he, thank God he uh, talked me back into that." Coming up after the break, more of my conversation with filmmaker Ryan Johnson. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Back now to my conversation with Ryan Johnson, the writer-director of the new Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion. First, a scene from the film with Daniel Craig playing Detective Benoit Blanc and Kate Hudson playing Bertie J, a former model and fashion entrepreneur. I'm a truth teller. Some people can't handle it. It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. Don't you think? Are you calling me dangerous? (laughs) So what's interesting about this scene is that Kate's character has no idea that she's just been insulted. Um, And it's this idea that some of the actors, maybe a lot of the actors or a lot of the characters in this story are operating on a different level intellectually, however you want to decide it, than Benoit is. And the question Mm -hmm. is, he is the smartest guy in the room. I think that's the conceit of the films. Mm. But the other people, if they're dumb, it's not as interesting. So how do you walk that line between his being mm. smart and their not being like laughably mil- misinformed and and I guess stupid? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the the and with this movie in particular, because as opposed to the first movie, Knives Out, it, in this movie, it is a bit more of a broad sort of, you know, inflated kind of strange lovey type tone to it, and so that means all the characters are a bit more goofy in their in their dumbness. Uh, but I guess it's a it's a two part answer. I guess the first part is. I still have to find my way inside each of them, like with Birdie, for example. Yeah, she's oblivious, but she's also in her own way incredibly savvy. And there's there's something that I talked about with Kate with her, which she is it's also she's a survivor and she's savvy. And there is also something very uh kind of sad and and lonely at the heart. So something kind of needy in a way that I know I could relate to and that help me get in the character while I was writing it. Second part is, is casting Kate Hudson right. in that part. And, and um, you know, just like casting Edward Norton to play Miles or, or Catherine Hahn to play Claire at the instant, you put a incredibly smart actor into, into that role. Suddenly it has an inner, that, that part has an inner life and all of those layers that I talked about playing the writing can come out. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the easy answer is you cast great actors. <laughs> well, let's 
Talk about casting, um, because I think that's really interesting. Your casting directors are Mary Vernieu and Brett Howe. Do I say their names right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. What do you, where do you start? I mean, do you have people in mind as you're writing outside of Daniel Craig uh, character types? How how does that conversation work between you and your casting directors? Well, while I'm writing, I try I, I try really hard not to think about actors because because um, first of all, it can be a pathway to heartbreak if if you can't get the ones you're thinking of. But also, I feel like then I'm just modeling it based on another performance I've seen <laughs> the actors, so uh, it doesn't seem fair. So I try and just write characters, and I'll, I'll think of other people in my life. I'll think of people who aren't actors. I'll think of I will have types and kind of references in my head. Um, and all of those will come out when I sit down with the script and have my first conversation with, with Mary and Brett. And then I'll really try and just talk character and get Mary kind of into my head in terms of what's important, what are the aspects we're looking for. And then Mary will, you know, make her lists. She'll make, you know, lists of who's around and who she thinks she can be interesting. And sometimes it's like spot on. Yes, that's, that's fantastic. This person is exactly what I was thinking. And sometimes like with the case of Dave Bautista in this movie, um, I wrote that to be played. I figured that would be played by a skinny white guy. Really? And, yeah. I imagine that part being like somebody who's spouting all this nonsense, you know, mandom stuff, uh, but is punching above his weight class. And when Mary suggested Dave for it, I just thought, oh, my God, that's that's fantastic. Also, because I knew I had admired Dave as an actor for a long while and I knew he would bring kind of a, a, a bizarre softness to the part that would that would belie his you know his bigness so um so yeah it's a, it, it, sometimes you're surprised and that always feels good yeah that would be an example unlike alanis morissette's definition of ironic that that that, that character <laughs> is now played by a really big guy i want to ask you about it's a like couple, a, it's but, like rain on your wedding day john that's like rain right, on that, your wedding there's day. there's one line of irony in the it's entire ironic, song and it's the, it's needing <laughs> it's ha- needing a, a spoon and only having a thousand knives the other things are just bad timing um According, <laughs> there's like whole there's whole grammatical analysis of that song. Um, Knives Out came out in 2019, which is obviously the last pre-pandemic year, um, both like in the business and in the world. And now we're in early 2023. A lot has changed in the world, and a lot has changed in the way that people watch movies. So. I guess it's a, it's, my wife would object as a compound question as the lawyer, but my question is, mm-hmm. there's the physical changes of how the business has changed, and then there's the kind of cultural health changes that the world has gone through. Do any of those affect the way that you're thinking about the movie and releasing the movie? Well, I mean, yeah, the big change of you know the pandemic we all went through, that literally affected and that I just, I rooted into the movie. That was, that was one kind of, uh, you know, big dilemma I had when I started writing back in 2020, but I kind of figured, well, the marching orders for these movies are to take this genre and set it in the here and now. And this is the one big thing that's happening to all of us right here and now. So figuring out a way to work it in um, so that it, it, so that it still worked within this kind of light confection, I guess. Um, but in terms of, you know, what you're talking about with the way 
the world has changed either business-wise or the way people watch movies or the notion of it being a streaming world and what's happening to theatrical. Um, I, I can't, I don't, I, I don't really, I don't think I'm smart enough to do that math and adjust uh, what I'm actually making for that. I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm making movies for audiences and I'm making movies to try and entertain audiences. And I want, I really am genuinely creatively engaged by doing the Hitchcock thing of playing the audience like a piano and getting, giving them a true roller coaster ride. And, um, and so, and I'm not sure how I would make different choices based on knowing people are going to be watching this at home or watching it, you know, on the big screen. I, I, I guess maybe a better filmmaker would be able to do that, but yeah. Yeah. Although I will say having watched it, on a big screen, the difference between that and a laptop is you don't notice the details of incredible costume design, production, production mm -hmm. design. Uh, the music might not sound the same. That said, yeah. in the first three weeks that this movie has been on the service, it has been viewed, and I just looked, 171 and a half million hours, which I guarantee you <laughs> is more than any Star Wars movies you might have worked on. And I think, <laughs> and Reed Hastings, the head of Netflix, actually admitted that what he thought was a kind of promotional tactic for the theatrical release, uh, should it should have been in theaters longer. Do you pay mm -hmm. attention to how people are turning out? Obviously, you want your work to be seen, but this is one of those weird things where it could have done even more business in theaters, and it's doing great business on mm -hmm. the service. Do you pay attention to that at all? Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, in terms of the theatrical element of it, I mean, first of all, I should say that what Netflix did with the week in theaters, um, e even though it was just a week, I, I also was very conscious that they were making a big effort, uh, that they stepped out of their comfort zone to do that because it was a week in theaters, but it was the first time they worked with the, the big three chains. Right. It was the first time they put actual money and muscle behind promoting a theatrical run of a film. They had never done that before, really. And so they they made an effort, and this was very much a test for them. And what I and then I was very much paying attention. I first of all, because I want people to see it. You want people to like it. I also, though, really wanted to do well when they hit the service to illustrate that you can have both and that the theatrical element can complement the and make it even more valuable when it hits the service. Um, because I want more <laughs> next time. I want, I want that theatrical element to keep growing. I want to show that those two things are not in opposition to each other um, and that those two things can actually support each other. You have worked on original films, uh, The First Knives Out, um, certainly Looper, and you've also worked on sequels or franchises, The Last Jedi, and now Glass Onion. Mm -hmm. Is there a different challenge, satisfaction in doing something that's part of an ongoing story versus creating something original? No, not for me. I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, obviously you're, you know, with the example of Star Wars, it's, it's, taking the story that is leading into the movie and, and and figuring out the most interesting, honest way of playing that forward. And then thinking in terms of what are the elements at the end that I can then hand off to the next storyteller. Um, but at the same time, also, no, I, I, it, I don't feel in terms of what actually happens within that frame of the film though, it's um, you're still trying to leave it all on the table. You're still trying to kind of, um, 
put every idea you've got in there and and leave the audience truly satisfied by the end of it um, as opposed to just like dot 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 question mark cliffhanger and with and with these films with knives out and glass onion it's even more so i mean they're what excites me about it is not the idea of serialized kind of you know i the the f word franchise i kind of you know shrink from a little bit just because i can't think of it that for me it's just h1 is a new movie and i'm trying to do something with each of them that that is scary to me in the good way in the way of I don't know. Oh, I wonder if I can make this work. Oh, I've never quite seen this before. Could this work? You know what I mean? As opposed to just kind of turning the crank on another one, I guess. When you think about puzzles, because you mentioned that word earlier, are you thinking about some of the things I'm obsessed with, the New York Times spelling bee, or are you talking more <laughs> about Agatha Christie in terms of the way that your mind works, the kind of puzzles you like to to work on or play? Well, I do do the New York Times crossword every day. Um, so I am just a genuinely uh, <laughs> a puzzle nut. But um, I know, I guess when I was talking about it, I was also like, I think there's an element to it in storytelling. You know, I, I do think that um, although with the whodunit, I feel like that it's kind of one of the things in terms of the way I try and approach these things is is to get away from what I think is the illusion that the pleasure of a whodunit for the audience is laying out a string of clues and they can possibly solve it at the end. And I think that needs on some level to be true, but I, I, and I think that's never going to be the entertainment thing for an audience. And if you count on it to be, you're going to have a bored audience, I think, right? after about 20 minutes. It's fun to kind of look for the clues about 20 minutes, and then you're like, okay, what's actually happening? I think you actually, that's why with both of these films, building a narrative engine into it that is much more of a Hitchcock style, um, leaning forward in your chair as opposed to leaning back and trying to solve it. Um, but at the same time, I, I think similar to a magic trick there are just elements of how good storytelling works that that line up with uh kind of the mystery of presenting a puzzle box and okay let's get in and figure out what's actually ticking beneath that surface at some point in the future i want to play code names with you because i bet you you're very good at board games I love the movie. I've seen it twice. Uh, we uh, showed it with our kids and their girlfriends. It was a great evening, and we made some soup. It was uh, a perfect. Oh, nice. uh, we watched on on Christmas Eve. It was a perfect Christmas. Present. Oh, I love that. Oh, it makes me happy. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate it, man. That was Ryan Johnson, the writer-director of Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. It's on Netflix now. He also has a new streaming series coming out, a Columbo-style mystery of the week show called Poker Face, starring Natasha Lyonne. It premieres on Peacock later this month. Coming up, the SAG Award nominations and that other award show. It's on trend for a world rapidly warming due to climate change. I'm LA's senior science reporter, Jacob Margolis, and I help Southern Californians understand the science of our imperfect paradise. It is not unprecedented at all for fires in the western U.S. to affect cities on the eastern seaboard. So that we can better protect our environment and prepare for natural disasters as the climate continues to change. There's a giant mass of warm water stretching from Alaska down to California. independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. 
I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat. It's usually with KPCC Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week, guest host Sharon McNary was filling in. Uh, Briefly, there was a Hollywood Awards show in Beverly Hills. Um, What news do you have for us out of that? Well, let me say that Tar actor Kate Blanchett and the Whale star Brendan Fraser steered clear of the ceremony, and so did I. And if you wouldn't want to know what I think about this show, which I won't name, but it rhymes with the Golden Globes, is so illegitimate. Go to Elias.com and look for my story. It's pretty clear in that piece that I'm not a fan. What was amazing is to see papers like the LA Times and the New York Times give the ceremony any space alone, let alone pages of coverage. That's for another day. But uh, yes, you can read about it uh, in Elias.com. That happened on Tuesday night. Uh, and that's about all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> okay, noted. Um, well, that said, the Screen Actors Guild announced its SAG Award nominations on Wednesday, and they are not a joke. In fact, I think you've made the argument that outside of the Oscars, they're the most important of all the awards shows. So what did the nominating committee for the SAG Awards say? Well, first of all, one small disclaimer, you and I are both members of the larger combined union, SAG-AFTRA. I do not vote in the SAG Awards and never have. That said, uh, this is what happened. Uh, the films with the most nominations were The Banshees of Inisherin and Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, they got five nominations, which ties the record for the most nominations by any film set by Shakespeare in Love, Chicago, and Doubt. The important thing about the SAG Awards is the actors are the largest branch within the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So, what wins or nominated for SAG often repeats at the Oscars. So they have an award for best cast, used to be called best ensemble. It's essentially their best picture uh, award. And one surprise in that category was Babylon, a movie I love by Damien Chazelle, which hasn't been on a lot of people's lists. Banshees of Inna Sharon, everything, uh, everywhere, all at once, The Fablemans and Women Talking, my favorite film of the year. Uh, were nominated for Best Cast. And also, there's a performance in Banshees of Inna Sharon, not by Brendan uh, Gleeson or, or Colin Farrell, by an actor named Barry Keoghan. He's one of my favorite actors. He also got nominated, so I was happy about that. That said, um, Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion didn't get any nominations, and she said another movie that I think is really important. This is the story about the New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, did not get any nominations either. Well, reporters always love films about reporters, unless, of course, we hate them. So That's true, because many movies about newspapers and reporting get it so wrong. So but this wrong. one does not. Well, anything that you'd consider a must-see? Uh, I think everybody should see, she said, I think everybody should see women talking. And should see them in theaters, because A... That's where they're most enjoyed. And B, if people don't show up for these movies in theaters, they're not going to get made going forward. Well, I saw that Avatar, The Way of Water, was nominated only once by SAG Award voters for outstanding action performance by a stunt ensemble in a motion picture. That doesn't mean it's being ignored in other places, right? Not at the multiplex. I mean, 
remember that people are still really scared of going back to the theaters. Um, there's been you know big pandemic problems in China. The film has grossed 1.73 billion dollars to date. I don't know if it's going to pass the first Avatar for the highest grossing film of all time, but it's doing incredibly well. And in China, they actually extended the run there, which is unusual. It probably will gross 200 million dollars in China, so it's doing extremely well, even if it's not ending up on a lot of awards lists. That's KPCC's John Horn. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.